It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle one, the package is being delivered. By the year 2000, people started believing in the advent of widespread email culture that the United States Postal Service was doomed. Conservatives and business types argued that it was a bloated institution. But it's not. In fact, it's a vital, robust network that is literally a failsafe in the doomsday plans of the federal government. These days, while people may not be sending many letters or postcards, the USPS is an essential service helping us vote, get our medicine, and deliver us packages. President Trump isn't a fan. The Postal Service is a joke because they're handing out packages for Amazon and other internet companies, and every time they bring a package, they lose money on it. But motherboard reporter Aaron Gordon is, and he's just launched a newsletter, The Mail, which is all about the USPS. And you should all subscribe to The Mail. Enter your email address at vice.com slash the mail. Again, that's vice.com slash the mail for this amazing new newsletter on the USPS. Aaron is on the show this week to tell us more about the future of the Postal Service. Aaron, I think this is your first time on the show, isn't it? It is. It's taken too long. (laughs) I'm sure you've had much better guests than me. No, no, not true. Not true. I've had Jason. So oh, all right. Definitely... Yeah, I take that back then. <laughs> okay, well, you know, you're the person to talk about because you've done some incredible reporting over the last little while on infrastructure in general. And, you know, you had some some recent articles on the controversy surrounding the USPS and our president, Mr. Donald Trump. And I want to ask you, you know, just to start things off, give give me sort of a thirty thousand foot look at what's going on, the controversy that that's 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 taken place over the last little little while. Sure. So, uh, as you probably know, Trump has uh, had a thing about the post office basically his entire presidency because he has this weird like mental model that uh, it is that Jeff Bezos, who he hates because he also owns the Washington Post, uses the post office. Um, to it rips off the post office to profit his company Amazon, and this has somehow become an object of Trump's fascination. Uh, and then more recently, uh, obviously the post office has been under incredible financial strain, like almost everything else, due to the coronavirus pandemic, and needs money. And Trump has basically blocked the post office from getting any money from Congress uh, because he doesn't like the post office, essentially. Uh, and then more recently, obviously, the tr- the post office has become super important for primary elections and soon the general election in November because people are increasingly re- relying on voting by mail uh, during the pandemic to vote rather than going to in-person polling places. The, the recent controversy and, and news cycle is largely the product of a new postmaster general named Louis DeJoy, who assumed office uh, on June 15th and has rapidly made a number of very sweeping changes to the way the post office functions, Uh, one of which he slashed overtime, uh, which the post office really relied on to deliver mail and packages reliably every day, not just because they're short-staffed due to coronavirus, but also because of uh, tens of thousands of attrition-related job cuts over the last a decade or so due to kind of austerity politics, for lack of a better word. Um, And so 
that slowed down the mail considerably. Some people are not getting reliable delivery anymore. Packages are waiting in distribution facilities for weeks. And another thing that has happened more recently is uh, mail sorting machines. Uh, hundreds of them are getting removed from distribution facilities. Uh, the post office says they're doing this because of decreasing mail volumes and a desire to be more efficient. Uh, but the workers I've talked to say that doesn't really make any sense to them because uh, they're completely destroying the machines or removing them from the facilities entirely. These machines cost, you know, upwards of a million dollars at least. It's just completely unclear why you would destroy them when the future of mail volume is completely uncertain. And especially with the expected surge of ballots in the coming months, it seems like you would want to have some spare capacity lying around in case you need it. Uh, so that's like roughly what's going on with the post office right now. Uh, things are happening very, very rapidly. Democrats in both chambers of Congress are, have taken a big interest in the post office. And we're going to be learning a lot more in the coming days and weeks, I'm sure. I mean, Trump did actually say the quiet part out loud in terms of I don't like the USPS or I'm paraphrasing here essentially because of its 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 association with mail in ballots. Yeah, he basically said he doesn't he doesn't want to give the USPS more money because uh, if it doesn't have more money, then people can't vote by mail was basically what he said. And that's a thing that he wants because he doesn't want people voting by mail. I feel like I need to at least mention that, like almost everything else Trump says, this is some combination of wrong, factually nebulous, and just completely unclear about what he's even talking about. Like, it's, it's, it's not evidence, at least to me, that there is some conspiracy to rig the post office. You can find that evidence elsewhere, by the way. Like, it's not—I'm not saying that definitely isn't the case, but just because Trump said these things doesn't mean it's actually what he's up to, uh, in my mind. And, like, there are reasons for that that we can get into if you want, but, like— I, I just hesitate to like read too much into anything he says about the post office or really anything else in general. No, I, I you know what? I kind of, I, I see it. I see it in two different ways. One, I think it, when he says something like that, it, it's a complete, he's throwing a bone at all the media and the Democrats for them to attack and to pick up because it's similar to like the way he he said he was going to, designate Antifa a foreign terrorist organization, which, you know, if you know anything about FTO designations, it's impossible. And he was just saying that. And it, of course, it became a massive issue, especially during, you know, very fraught summer with uh, BLM protests that he he didn't he didn't tend to uh, to care much for. But then you look at something like this, the USPS, and then mail in and it, it goes along with 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 voter manipulation, etc. But I think the bigger thing and I think it's something you you might agree with me on is that the USPS also just seems to be this thing that conservatives and Republicans just just really seem to dislike. They really want to go after it. It's always something that comes up as this you know bloated government bureaucracy that we have to pay for. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's it it's funny it all it, it almost has all the trademarks that you would expect of an agency that conservatives and Republicans wouldn't like. Um, it, it, it's So first of all, it's worth saying that the post office, like since 1971, is not technically a government agency. It's like a quasi-government bureaucracy, corporation, Frankenstein hybrid type deal. 
Um, it used uh, up until 1971. It was a it was a cabinet level position. So like you had the Secretary of State, you had the tre- Secretary of Treasury, you had all this stuff, and then you had the Postmaster General sitting right there. But after that, uh, it got basically broken off from the government and in in some important ways. And now it's basically like a quasi government corporation. And critically, it receives no federal no tax no tax money no tax revenue no government subsidies whatsoever um it is completely self-funded by you know the stamps it sells the postage it sells all that kind of stuff and this was you know like kind of like step one of traditional conservative business logic that anything the government does that could pay for itself should pay for itself and something subsidized by tax dollars is almost by definition bad like is is kind of like the rough rubric we've seen from conservative circles especially when it comes to government services over the last few generations and what we and the post office is kind of like a, a special uh target from from the right because nearly all of its costs are labor costs and that is like a dog whistle for conservatives about an inefficient operation. Like if you're paying people to do something, that's bad. You should be paying your money should be going elsewhere is like basically conservative ideology in a nutshell, like something like 85% of the post office's annual costs are labor. And you look and and like a lot of conservatives look at that and say, that is an inefficient operation. And there has got to be, you know, they look at the amount of overtime that the post office spends, which is billions of dollars a year. And they say, well, that's stupid. Like, why are we spending so much on overtime? That's obviously inefficient. Well, the thing about the post office is it has a legal mandate to deliver mail to every single person in the country every single day, no matter where they live. And I don't know the last time you like looked at a map of the U.S., but like, it's a pretty big place with lots of people living in very rural areas. And yes, like c- city mail delivery can probably be profitable, but there is just absolutely no shortcut to delivering physical objects to every single American that doesn't involve just an absolutely immense amount of labor, like just so much freaking work. And so... There's like this fundamental contradiction at the heart of the modern post office, which is it's supposed to pay for itself while also doing all of this incredible amount of work that just simply isn't profitable. Like, how are you going to justify having someone pay 55 cents to send a letter to someone who lives in the middle of nowhere, pay someone to go give them that letter? Like, it just it it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so you have this like kind of fundamental contradiction at the heart of what the modern post office is. And a lot of its struggles are really are really um, coming out from that. I mean, it's 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 similar to the healthcare debate, right? How do you how do you expect people to pay for this? At a certain point, it needs to just be taken care of by the state, just like everywhere else in the world. But I think also, you know, if you look at this, there is sort of this problem with the ways in which people see the post office in general, because you see people saying, you know, it's just to send letters to your friends. And that's, you know, it's a totally absurd concept, especially when you think about what, what the USPS has meant during this pandemic. I mean, the reason we have the post office is also to deliver essential goods and services like medicine especially to some of the aging people that would actually require mail-in votes because they're older and shouldn't be exposed to coronavirus. 
So you look at this, and I think there's also a problem with the ways in which people are looking at the post office. We look at it like the internet age happened, email happened, no more post office. The crazy part about the internet is, at least as far as I know, you can't deliver a package through the internet yet. You can't teleport me, you know, the latest uh, IKEA furniture table set I ordered, you know? <laughs> well, it's so interesting you bring that up because, you know, around the time that Congress was debating this, uh, I shouldn't say they even debated it. They didn't debate it at all. They just passed it. There was a, a law in 2006 um, called the Postal Enhancement and Accountability Act that basically was a poison pill for the post office. It required them to pre-fund their healthcare retirement benefits for employees. So like it's basically the equivalent of if I told you, Ben, right now, that over the next 10 years, you have to set aside all the money you're going to spend on healthcare for the rest of your life. And how do you think that affect your finances? You're probably not great, right? You'd, pro you'd probably run into some financial difficulties. Well, that's exactly what's happened with the post office. And that's where most of their debt comes from, is this like completely artificial um, mandate passed by Congress in 2006. Um, and so the reason why I bring that up right now is because at the time, the post office was doing okay uh, money-wise, and they thought, oh, this is fine. The post office can totally afford this. Well, two things happened. One is email really took off and people stopped sending as many like business first-class express mail letters than they used to, which hurt the post office's finances for a few years. But then something something happened that nobody predicted, which is the internet actually kind of saved the post office in some way by enabling e-commerce. And packages are, I mean, despite Trump's rhetoric, they seem to be beneficial for the post office's bottom line. They make money on packages and for, for the most part. And so the internet actually enabled the post office to enter this new line of business that absolutely nobody predicted beforehand. So like the effect that technology has had on the post office, and this is not new, this is not just the internet, this goes back to the telegraph, you know, the radio, all, television, all of these technolo communication technologies that change the way the post office functions, or at least the way it relates to society a little bit, but, or, and maybe, you know, took some lines of businesses away, opened up new ones, but it still always had a fundamental purpose, a real core function in society. And it turns out the internet didn't change that. No, it didn't. And that's, and that's the thing is that we keep, you know, we keep looking at this as if the internet has solved the problem of the post office. And it, it, it absolutely has. And as you said, this is something that's, that's dated back for years. I mean, do you also see this sort of being a, a, a bipartisan issue that Republicans and Democrats have both sort of done some damage to this institution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look back, you know, I just mentioned the 2006 Postal Reform Act. It was obvious during the Obama administration uh, how detrimental this was to the post office finances. It was no secret. And they didn't do anything about it. Um, literally nothing. And, so, you know, they had the chance to change that law, to change the payment schedule, to maybe reimburse the post office for some of the funds that it had set aside for no good reason to put it on more solid financial footing. It didn't do any of that. And not only that, but in the wake of the recession, it very much went along with postal service plans and encouraged them to slash their workforce to save money. And that's part of the reason why the post office is so vulnerable today, because it has 77,000 fewer workers than it used to have. Uh, it also relies much more on temp workers who make up about like, 
I think it's about 20% of the workforce today. Uh, these are basically like flexible hourly wage workers who are not the drivers of any financial problems at the post office, I can assure you. Uh, and it's actually a very difficult and thankless job. And and the turnover rate is like something approaching 50% per year because it pays ter- it doesn't pay well. The hours are terrible. You can't set your own schedule. You're basically on call whenever the manager wants you and you have no job security or really any benefits to speak of. So I think, you know, and these things happen during um, during the Obama administration. These things really took off during the Obama administration. Uh, you know, th- there were times where Democrats could have fixed things and they didn't. And I think that's kind of, you know, the story about a lot more than just the post office. Yeah, and also like question like when are we gonna get the drones out to help them again? Like when's that supposed to happen? Amazon? <laughs> yeah, I mean like there's it, it, it so much reminds me of some previous you know reporting beats I've been on like in transportation. You know, there's no reason to really invest in American public transportation because autonomous cars are right around the corner. You know how stupid will this light rail seem when everyone's zooming around in their autonomous cars at the same time that's finished? Well. If that's what people were saying in like 2015. And uh, I got to tell you, autonomous cars look no closer today than they were in 2015 to widespread use. Meanwhile, we've, you know, kind of, we continue to build out public transportation at an incredibly slow pace. And you still hear public transportation officials saying it today, like, oh, you know, we got to balance the infrastructure we want to build today with what we expect the technology to be in the future. And it's like, do we? Do we? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's one of those classic stories where you know it's an old, it's an it's an old institution, an old infra- piece of infra- infrastructure, and because of this sort of Silicon Valley way of thinking that we've all adopted since about you know the mid two thousands, suddenly it's like, well, it needs to be destroyed and taken away. Like, why do we even need it anymore? Right. Like, hmm. And there's just and it, like the I, the post office and public transportation and a lot of these other like kind of. Uh, institutions that America has, especially public institutions that America has really kind of abandoned over the last uh, several decades, it, they're, they're so robust, you know, they're like in, in kind of like a just traditional sense of that word, like they can handle lots of different climates, both economic and, you know, and meteorolo- meteorological and just like, you know, they're just, they work in so many different situations changing trends, changing tides, uh, different places, different contexts. They just work, you know, if you just like fund them. And I feel like that's something we really just don't care enough about is building robust institutions rather than new ones. Right. And and I think, you know, doomsday goes down. The U.S. Postal Service, it's going to help us. Yeah. I mean, the USPS is literally part of the federal government's doomsday plans to like distribute medication to to tour to you know areas affected by whatever doomsday scenario they're game planning or like getting information to them if all other communication channels break down i mean the federal government at least prior to this administration thought of the post office as this way as like this last resort way to get information between people and I think the pandemic has really reinforced that role it plays, even though I think the role the post office is playing today for a lot of people may seem more mundane, you know, like maybe you just get like your 
the packages you ordered online through the post office. And yeah, like that new, Mm -hmm. you know, coffee maker that you splurged on is very nice and you're very thankful for the post office for delivering it. Like it's much more important than that. Like it's uh, the, just for one example, the VA uses an online medication system that entirely depends on the post office to deliver medication to its what millions of veterans around the country. And so if, that, mm-hmm. If that system breaks down or even slows down, like, you know, if you don't if you don't get your insulin in time or whatever, you know, they, these are they're nitroglycerin for your heart problems. Like these are super important systems that need to work regularly and well and be robust to deal with any potential problems that come up, uh, you know, and, and the post office has traditionally been that. And I think it's scary to think about an administration or a country that doesn't value that. I, I completely agree. Well, one last question. Is there any way that you think, I'm going to, for lack of a better term, I'm going to say the cyber, something technological, can really revolutionize and help the U.S. Postal Service to, to become more efficient, but also to become, maybe not efficient, to become even more useful to Americans? Yeah, so I'm going to answer that in a uh, question in two parts. First, I'm going to say that one of the greatest innovation, technological innovation stories of the 20th century is the post office. I mean, in the in the second half of the 20th century, it went from literally employing thousands of hundreds, if not thousands of people at a given facility to hand sort mail. An incredible, an incredible skill. If you like know, I mean, I don't have to get into it now, but like the amount, the amount of mail that an individual well-trained sorter could handle back in those like hand sorting days was incredible but it was still like obviously super inefficient by modern standards and very labor intensive uh what the post office did was they underwent a decades-long process to gradually introduce machines to sort the mail instead and they actually you pioneered one of the first optical character recognition machines in commerce to read the addresses that people hand write on letters and it works remarkably well and it did right from the get-go it had like something a 97 or 98 percent accuracy rate when it first debuted i think in the 1970s and it's only gotten better since and so what we've seen is facilities that used to employ you know maybe like eight nine hundred people to manually sort mail now need like only a couple dozen to feed the mail into the machine and then kind of move it once it gets sorted and then, you know, repeat that at each machine terminal and, you know, some maintenance staff to, to maintain the machines and whatnot. So I want to, and you know, the, and the distribution systems have gotten more sophisticated at the, as they've used more powerful computers to kind of model what it should look like. So I think there's a tendency to think of the post office as very low tech, Um, And in some ways, it absolutely is. You know, the guy still comes to your door and puts mail in the mailbox the same way that he did 100 years ago. But behind the scenes, the post office has made incredible technological improvements and innovation. And I think these are the types of innovation. And again, this kind of goes back to a lot of what I saw in the transportation beat, too. These are the types of innovation that really matter in making better systems They're the incremental uh, changes that really improve our lives in hidden ways um, gradually over time 
that we don't appreciate enough. We're always looking for that big, like, when are the drones going to deliver my mail type thing? But it's like, would a drone delivering your mail actually be any better than a human doing it? Like, what advantages does that actually offer? And is, isn't, aren't there a lot of ways in which that would actually be worse? You know, so there's like, so there's this obsession with new technological things as being obvious, like totally new things being obviously better. But a lot of the a lot of the better technological things are actually the things that happen behind the scenes that just like make processes a little bit better. And uh, I think I will also note that like a lot of listeners might be tempted to say, oh, well, they replaced all those jobs with machines and then, you know, like derive maybe, uh, you know, conclusions from that. You know, maybe maybe you lean towards what a what a great thing this was for the post office to save money by not not paying people to do this. Maybe you lean towards how horrible for those workers to not have jobs anymore. Um, but the reality is during the time that the post office was undergoing these changes, their workforce actually was pretty stable and even grew a little bit. Um, it depends exactly what time period you're looking at. Um, but there weren't any obvious changes to the overall size of the postal workforce while they were undergoing these innovations because there were other things for people at the post office to do. So there was reassignments. There were people maybe who lost their jobs, but then got them back doing something else. Um, And a big part of that is because the post office has an incredibly high unionization rate. The unions help protect people's jobs. I mean, I'm sure if the post office wasn't as unionized, a lot of people would have lost their jobs permanently, but that didn't happen. And in fact, they ended up doing things um, like they needed more people to deliver mail because there were more people in the country during this period and more addresses to deliver to more offices. And so like you just see people doing different jobs as opposed to, you know, losing them. And I think these are important observations to like these kinds of technological changes. Honestly, the one of the things I mean, this is one thing I have reported on is their delivery trucks are super old. Like a lot of them are older than I am. I'm 30 and a lot of them are older than that. Uh, They haven't been like they get something like eight to 10 miles to the gallon. They don't have air conditioning. They're like these little tin boxes that, I mean, they've certainly served the American people well, but man, is it time for them to be retired? Um, And (laughs) the USPS is supposed to announce, uh, you know, a new mail delivery truck contract by the end of the year. I'm worried that it is going to be a regular old gas truck that will be better for the people making deliveries, but not what we should have in the year 2020 or 2021 or whatever they do. The fact is the post office is like a perfect candidate for electric vehicles. Like you could not come up with a use case that is better fit for like what the current technology is for electric vehicles. They go, they, they park in the same place every single day. They go on routes of between like, 30 and 75 miles, which like is a, is a very, very affordable battery size in electric vehicles today. Very reasonable. And they always go back to the same place. So charging can be super predictable. And the federal government obviously has the money to build out the charging infrastructure and pay, you know, the slightly higher costs for, um, for acquiring the vehicles now, while realizing the long-term savings on maintenance and fuel that uh, that electric vehicles will provide. So it's like, it's really disappointing to me to see all this talk about how 
how the post office has to be like, oh, it has to be an efficient operation and have all these, you know, uh, uh, be business focused. And it's like they're missing out on probably one of the biggest efficiencies they could implement both for themselves and for like the environment. And so that's that's been a real uh, bummer to me. I hope something changes, but I'm not holding my breath for it. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> I'm glad to, I'm glad to have talked about the U.S. Post Office with you. This is uh, an important conversation and we'll see what changes. I mean, it, I, I'm sure we'll talk again before the election because I think this mail in vote situation will bring the USPS back into the news. Yeah, I think that's right. Hopefully, hopefully it's to um, better news and not something about how uh, Trump is successfully rigging the election. Yes, I agree. Thanks for coming to the show. Thanks, Ben. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, hi Ben, Lorenzo. That was that was a contentious pre-talk. We should leave. We should leave the soccer talk aside from these uh, from these dark. I don't times. know what you're talking about. I don't even know what soccer is. These dark times. You think I'd be talking about the pandemic, but I'm talking about the state of FC Barcelona. Uh, I have no comments on that. The nightmarish laughingstock of European football. Anyways, nobody wants to hear this. Uh, okay, let's get to the first the first story for the cipher. It is a it is a classic, a classic uh, a classic uh, tale of data and purchase that uh, our our very own Mr. Cox always comes up with. This time it involves the Secret Service and how it bought phone location data from apps. Let's go. Yeah, this Tell is a, a great example of a, of a story. This is a. Just a great Joseph Cox story. You know, it's been a classic uh, of his last couple of years. Um, what happened is that in 2017, the Secret Service purchased uh, something called Locate X from a company called Babel Street uh, for something like $2 million. And what Locate X does is that it shows the lo- location data of uh, mobile phones. In theory, it's anonymized location data. And it's location data created by ordinary apps. So any kind of like uh, app that you can think of on your phone. Um, and the, the story here is that uh, by purchasing this data, which has been harvested by uh, Babel Street, the Secret Service can basically sidestep the regular process of um, um, of like getting a warrant and that way finding out where you've been uh, and where uh, suspects have been. 
So, so this is the concern. Um, you know, there are so many companies like this and most of them that are, are buying, yeah. buying location data from place. I mean, this is something that he's been reporting on since what, 2018 now? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's the big takeaway here. You know, there's, there's countless companies like this. Most of them are completely unknown to the public. You know, these are not, uh, like these are not companies like Palantir even, you know, that are sort of like a household name in the surveillance uh, and intelligence world. These are small companies that buy like location data from all these apps like Seamless or whatever. And then they package it, maybe sell it to another uh, company that then resell it, resells it to the government. And this whole process has almost zero transparency. It's very unclear where the data comes from uh, and where it ends up uh, used for. So yeah, it's, it's also just, it's very strange to see that I mean, it's all these government agencies have been suspected of doing stuff like this before, but it's like the secret service. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, this shows that like everyone is interested in location data and, and there's a market for it that makes it. Uh, and, you know, two million dollars for the secret service is probably not that much. So it's it's just another tool in their surveillance toolbox. Um, and uh, Senator Ron Wyden is looking into these companies, is trying to find out, you know, what what they do, how they work, uh, what kind of data exactly do they have and what kind of data exactly do they sell. And some of these companies are, like Babel Street in particular, has not even responded to his letters, hasn't even responded to his staff's calls. So Senator Wyden is like, what is going on here? We want to know what these companies are doing, what's the uh, the legal framework they're uh, working on under. Senator Ron Wyden, friend of the show. Yep, and a friend of, uh, not a friend of uh, companies that don't like your privacy or don't respect our privacy, so. Not a friend of those people at all. This is very true. He's done some some great work over the years looking at this exact issue. But now we're going to be talking about something that is the closest to my heart. Kato, cue the music. We're talking about aliens, everyone. Oh, yeah, UFOs. I'm talking about that. Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. It's official. It's here. I love this. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if X-Files was still around, um, this would be this would be great for, for the show, I guess. Um, but yeah. I mean, it's great for me and my, and just me. I love this a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, I think we all I, love, I love uh, UFOs and motherboards. It's amazing. So. It's amazing. We're all looking forward to seeing what what happens with this. So the Pentagon has officially launched uh, the UAPTF, uh, the, as you said, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. Uh, I wish they had hired like a I don't know, like a marketing guy for this kind of thing. Like I think there was potentially a better name for this, you know. But anyway, the task force will work across the whole Department of Defense and uh, can also collaborate with government agencies. And their their job is to study, like, you know, UFOs essentially, and uh, and uh, stuff like UFOs that get spotted around the military bases and and things like that. Yeah, and it's important to also remember that the U.S. has done this before, mm-hmm. and they kind of scuppered a a program in the past, and this sort of just represents a a rebolstering of 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 this this whole sort of study of of UFOs and these these aircraft that they can't really say what they are mm-hmm. that come into contact with military aircraft. Yeah, I mean it's crazy. Wasn't there wasn't there a story recently in, in Popular Mechanics? I was out in the 
in the wilds doing a story, but I remember I saw this on Twitter and I lost my proverbial shit, but where it was like the, a source said that the Pentagon admitted that there was like other, they were in possession of otherworldly spacecraft spacecraft yeah spacecraft yeah i'm not sure about that story but but yeah there's been um i think what's interesting here is that depending on it came out it's a popular mechanic story Mm -hmm. i i don't know i this is just i this is crazy yeah i think what's interesting here is that the the pentagon like announced this in a press release you know like they came out and said yeah we're doing this and uh Mm -hmm. so it's definitely like the most public um kind of like a team that um, we've ever known about. Uh, usually these kind of uh, efforts are uh, discovered by uh, FOIAs or after investigations or maybe because like there's a whistleblower or something like that. Uh, but in this case, the Pentagon is saying, yeah, you know, we have a team. Uh, we're going to start this and, and see what happens and, you know, see, see what's going on. It's still unclear what kind of information they will publish and what they will reveal, but... Um, you know, the fact that they have announced it publicly, the, the creation of the, the agency may indicate that they, they'll have more transparency around this. Amazing. I want more. There's going to be more. If President Trump ends up being the president that admits that UFOs are real or that aliens are real, I don't know what I'll do with my 2020. I think at this point, I'll probably crawl into a cave and never come out. Well, but think about uh, Independence Day 3 with Trump as president. You would, that would be something. Would be, it would be an interesting experience. Or Biden. I mean, frankly, even Biden. Like Biden's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's- we're talking about aliens. I saw an alien down in Pennsylvania when I was growing up. I was really, I saw him at the at the Coke shop. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So uh, <laughs> next uh, next is another Sam Samantha Cole classic. I'm just gonna read the headline because this is just. I think she does some of the most interesting journalism and and like some of the most important journalism, frankly. Um, but this is this is good. Internal emails show mayor trying to kill the fun at quote bare ass beach. This is in Minnesota, apparently. Yeah, this is a, a great FOIA scoop um, that Sam uh, got here. She obtained a bunch of emails um, from the mayor of Golden Valley, this town in Minnesota. And uh, the police, um, the police there, and it shows that the the mayor of Golden Valley was uh, trying very hard to get the police to crack down on uh, people that go to this beach called, well, it's informally called, informally known as Bear Ass Beach because it's a nudist beach, and uh, some people in the in the region in the area have been complained about this, and for some reason the mayor is really. Um, kind of obsessed with uh, going after people that, um, you know, show up naked to this beach. Um, there's even like a, in one of the emails, the mayor uh, that sends, sends to the police says, quote, the patrols need to be beefed up. Um, you know, got, we got to solve this problem of people being naked. Um, and th- it's interesting because the chief of police uh, seems uh, sort of um initially um, reluctant or at least skeptical that this is really worth it. There's an email in which he says that he saw some footage about on, of this beach and it looks like a, a slow day at another beach, you know, implying that he doesn't see why this is a big deal. But eventually the the end result of, of this, all this pressure from the mayor is that the cops two weeks later after these emails 
uh, flew a drone over the beach in an attempt to uh, catch uh, naked beachgoers. Which is, which is that's just it's kind of hilarious and a total violation of yeah it's like do privacy. you is this really what you need your police to focus on is this really like I I, I like I gotta be honest with you it's it's really funny seeing like America's obsession with nudity is is just hysterical it's like it's like you could you're allowed to watch Jack Bauer like kill a bunch of terrorists in like brutal execution style for like however long that show was on wow, deep cut four, here. Was it a 40 minute show, 25 minute show, whatever. <laughs> and then like the minute there's like a boob on TV, people are losing their, again, their proverbial shit. Yeah. The <laughs> like, other interesting um, angle here is that uh, the city has actually uh, approved um, or rather has repealed a ban to be topless on beach beaches, so women uh, cannot be fined for for being topless at this beach. Uh, so, like in, even in the emails, the the police says we're not going to fine uh, women for this. Um, and essentially, they're focusing on uh, getting you know men with their junk out. So, just a just a huge mess uh, at a city, and it's just it's just silly, you know. Why it is super silly. Just the anger over nudity is hilarious. It's pretty. It's pretty good. And gotta say, yeah, we'll see if the if they send uh, some predator drones at some point. I don't know. Yep. Well, as you can see, Motherboard is always contributing an eclectic mix of news and information for our readers and listeners. So, Lorenzo, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, R.I.P. FC Barcelona. We'll be back, and thank you, Ben. And you should all subscribe to the Mail. Enter your email address at vice.com slash the mail. Again, that's vice.com slash the mail for this amazing new newsletter on the USPS. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.